Father in heaven, we read in your word, the psalmist writes, open the gates of your salvation and I will walk through them. I am praying that you will do that for us today, that your word will be as a gate to salvation and that you will open your word to us. We'll walk in to that gate. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your word will be taught by you. Please, we need to hear from you, Lord. Who cares about the opinion of man? We want to know what you have to say. So please open your word in a magnificent, life-changing way for us. May we each know we've heard from you, and may we respond accordingly. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This week, our daughter Hannah had to go on a trip. She was driving, and uh, <clears throat> she was hungry. There weren't a lot of options along the road she was on. And she didn't have a lot of time, so she didn't want to take a lot of time. So a uh, drive-through, quick type of restaurant was pretty high on her list. The only one she saw was a McDonald's. She hadn't eaten at McDonald's for years. There's not a lot on the menu there that she likes. But it was there. She was hungry, and uh, she pulled over went through the drive-through, and she asked for a hamburger with everything on it except the hamburger. And uh, they said, okay. So she went up to the window, got the bag, put it in her car, and drove off. And as she was a ways down the road, she reached over to uh, eat her sandwich only to discover that all she had was a bun, one pickle, one squirt of ketchup, one squirt of mustard. That was it. You might say the golden arches did not deliver on their promises. Promises. Promises are an amazing, amazing hope filler. And in fact, I'm convinced that some passages in Scripture that are very difficult, if we step back and look at them in the context of a promise, not only do they make more sense, they actually bring hope. Today we are studying a passage that if we look at it just on its face value, it could be a bit discouraging. The illustrations that Jesus uses to demonstrate what he's saying could be very discouraging. But yet when we look at it in its context and we see it, the overall picture of a promise, we realize Wow, this is really, really important, and it is life-changing, and it is filled, just saturated with hope.
Our passage is Matthew 5, verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 20, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. We will never even begin to comprehend what Jesus means until we look at this in its context. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and so this has a Jewish flavor to it. Matthew is writing to Jews, so it has that element in it as well. In fact, Matthew's gospel is outlined in a way that would help a Jewish person embrace Jesus as the Messiah. We see that when we go to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, you have the story of the Magi coming to worship the child Jesus. They're warned by a dream to go home another way, and on the same night, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee from Herod and to go to another country. They will go to Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is going to set up the experience of Jesus to follow the same experience of the children of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is in Egypt. The next experience the Israelites would have would be crossing the Red Sea. Matthew does that in chapter 3 regarding Jesus' life in verse 16. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is in Egypt. Matthew chapter 3 symbolically goes through the Red Sea. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Israelites went through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness, and unfortunately, they are not successful in their fight against temptation. But they journey, and they journey to a mountain. Matthew 2, Egypt. Matthew 3, the Red Sea. Matthew 4, the wilderness. Matthew 5, Mount Sinai. Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. It goes on. He opened his mouth to teach them, and he taught them the Sermon on the Mount. So we find that this is very, very Jewish, written to help the Jewish people understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. That Jesus is the prophecies fulfilled in the flesh. It is about the Messiah and about the Messiah's kingdom. 
The Jews in the days of Jesus were looking for the new covenant. It was promised to them. It was promised to their people 600 years before Jesus. When the children of Israel were captive in Babylon, in this time of great discouragement, in this time when they were being punished by God for having walked away from God, God offered something new. We find it in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, this is a promise given by God. The original covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai had failed, not because of God, but because of the Israelites. So God has another promise, verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. New covenant promise. We go to Ezekiel to find out how that would actually happen. Ezekiel writes in the same time period that Jeremiah writes, but from a different location. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel, and we read in verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This beautiful new covenant promise had different elements in it. The law of God into the minds, written on hearts, he being their God, they will be his people. They would receive a new heart, a new spirit, a heart of flesh instead of stone. God's spirit would be within them and they would walk in his statutes. Matthew 5, verse 20 is the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus is the new covenant. And he is the fulfillment of God's promise of all these things to take place. And Jesus is introducing this to this people, to this group of people on this day in this Sermon on the Mount. So we go to Matthew 5, verse 20, and seek to understand this from that context. Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This expression, for I say to you, will be repeated another six times. In this expression, Jesus is declaring his authority. He is God in the flesh. 
In times past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. This is the one. He is here. He has all authority. And he will say six times after this, you have heard. It's been told you. But I say, this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. And it is different than the old covenant. Let's see this as Jesus will give six illustrations to demonstrate this. In Matthew 5, verse 21, <clears throat> you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not, I'm sorry, I missed the, yeah, here we go, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, see what he's doing here? Your interpretation, your understanding is not correct. In the new covenant, this is how it works. You get angry with somebody without a cause, you are considered a murderer. Whoa. The scribes and Pharisees didn't understand life that way. We'll get into that in just a moment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, but I say to you, we go on, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Verse 34, but I say to you, do not swear at all. He will conclude by saying, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. And then, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Wow. When we look at these, we recognize this is new stuff. This is, this is tough stuff. And when we come back to Matthew 5, verse 20, it even looks harder because Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So on come the scholars, on come the debaters, on come the theologians. Ah, man has no righteousness. We've been hearing that for a long time, especially through the writings of Paul. So it's simply saying, as Christians, with Christ being your righteousness, that's all this means. Oh, yawn, let's move on. That's not what it means. Jesus speaks of your righteousness in comparison with others' righteousness. So there is a right doing that Jesus is referring to. And he's comparing these 
people who are listening to him to the most religious group of people in the land, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were very, very much into a religion of not doing things that were against the law. That they spent their entire life not breaking the law. But Jesus says in his teachings, he's talking about an inward righteousness of mind and motive. Something far, far deeper. It's not what you don't do, Jesus is talking about. It's a motive down deep in the depths of your soul of why you wouldn't want to do it. It's not an external obedience, but is a complete change from within that recognizes, wow, that's within me. Wow, it wants expression. Wow, it wants to take place. But God, I don't want it to happen. I don't want that even here, let alone carried out. The scribes and the Pharisees believed, just don't carry it out and you will be fined. And Jesus says, no, it is not the letter of the law. It is the spirit of the law. Murder, don't be angry. Adultery, don't even lust. Divorce, not for any reason, as the scribes and Pharisees taught. Oaths, just say yes, just say no. Retaliation, not an eye for an eye. Hate your enemy, no. Love your enemy. These are things deep, deep within us. Now, in Matthew 5, verse 20, it says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is an important passage to understand. We're talking about whether or not we get to go to heaven as a response to this. Now, when I was studying this week, I thought, well, there's six of these, you know, what, what can I do? What, what would be the best one to focus on? Murder, you know, anger. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I've got a few illustrations I could share of other people. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not going to share my own problems. Adultery, definitely other people. But for some odd reason, I spent probably about three hours this week studying about adultery. And I thought, okay, Lord, I can see how you want me to preach on adultery. But he doesn't want me to preach on adultery. 
But yet the lesson from this section on adultery applies. It actually applies to all. Here's how it works. Jesus is living in a day when the religious leaders are very, very careful not to commit a sin. Jesus, in this new covenant, is saying, it's, it's not so much you don't commit a sin, it's the motive. We're, we're talking deep. And where we're identifying here is in our imagination. No one, no one has ever been immoral without it first beginning in their imagination. It's where it starts. It starts at that level. And Jesus is saying that's the level where it's got to stop. He will go on to describe in that passage that this is so important that if your right eye is offending you, pluck it out. If your hand is offending you, cut it off. Whack your foot off if that's the problem. Better to be maimed in this life and enter into the next than to miss the next. Let me ask you something. You obviously know not to take that literally. But if you did, if your issue was you were allowing your imagination to go wild because of what you saw, what good would it do to take the right eye out? You can still see, right? And if it's your hands that are somehow opening doors or whatever to sin, what good would it do to take one off? You still got the other one. Same with your foot. And so basically what Jesus is teaching in principle is if you see something and your imagination starts to follow a path that you shouldn't be on, stop it at that level. Stop your hands. Don't allow your feet to take you someplace. That's what he means. But what he is emphasizing is this battle is deep within us. The good news is this is a promise of victory in Christ. Now the bad news is you and I will battle all of these things all of our life. Because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're never angry anymore. And it doesn't mean you're not tempted to be really angry. I got a phone call one afternoon. It wasn't this church. It was another church I was pastoring. One of the members said, Pastor, do you have the phone number for so-and-so? I said, well, it's probably in the church directory. Let me look. Why? Oh, they said something in Sabbath school today that really ticked me off, and I want to talk to them. I said, well, don't you want to wait till you kind of cool off a little bit? No, I want to talk to them right now so I can tell them what I really think. Bad choice. We all are going to experience 
anger. And we are all going to have in our minds some punitive things we would wish would happen to someone. But when that happens, because of Jesus, because of the new covenant, because him dwelling in our hearts, we are able to say, uh-oh, uh-oh, danger, danger. I'm headed down a road I'm not supposed to be on. Father, forgive me. Jesus, please come in my heart. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to get this lined up right according to whom you are. There she sits, so pretty. And there he sits, so longing. The mind. Adultery begins in the mind. Jesus said, it even is adultery when it's in the mind. And you know, when you preach this, you always, it historically has been the man lusting after a woman. But my, ladies, you've come a long ways. <laughs> and you know, Pastors oftentimes will use this as an opportunity to tell the ladies how to dress. And the principle that is biblical is this. Ladies, God created you to be beautiful. Dress in a way that you're attractive. Just don't dress in a way to cause someone to want you for unholy reasons. And you may be saying, well, how do you dress that way? I don't know. That's between you and God. But here's the issue. That applies to men these days. I mean, any guy dressing to get attention is not working with God. Anybody, think about this, even personality-wise, God wants you to be friendly. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to shake people's hands and greet them warmly and feel connected on some level. But the minute it crosses a line where you're checking somebody out to see if there's some type of response, you're, you're, you're in trouble. Jesus says it stops there at the imagination level. When you sense it, when you feel it, you stop it by God's grace. If you don't, Jesus says, you're not going into heaven. You realize how serious this battle is. But it's in the context of victory. Victory in Christ. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you won't have a divorce. But be careful that it's not just for any reason. There are biblical reasons for divorce. We're not going through them today. <clears throat> there are non-biblical reasons for divorce too. I think two people who are 
truly converted, they'll be able to work it out. But let's be honest, God wouldn't live with the devil. Why should we have to? When it comes to your promises, say them if you mean them. If you don't, don't. Just don't. Don't make a promise you can't keep. And I, I preached on this before about turning the other cheek. At that time, I stated it this way. I don't know what it means, so I'm not going to do it. But I think what it means is when you're insulted, don't repay in kind. It's the basic gist of it. And love, whew. what Jesus talks about loving our enemies, loving people who curse us, praying for people who uh, uh, treat us so awful. Can any of you say, oh, that's my natural default mode. I mean, that's where I go as soon as that happens. None of us can say that. But all of us can say, wow, wouldn't that be wonderful? And that's what Jesus is promising us in the new covenant. A new heart I will give you. He will write the law in our minds. He will write the law on our hearts. He will be our God. We will be his people. He will give us a heart, a new heart. He will fill us with a new spirit. We will no longer have a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. He promises, my spirit will be within you, and you will walk in my ways, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The golden arches did not deliver on their promise. God will. God will deliver on his promise. And my question to you today is really quite simple. And that is, is there anyone here who would like to say to the Lord, I really want to experience the new covenant that you have promised in Jesus Christ. I want that. And I am willing by your grace, Lord, to battle at the imagination level so that when these awful things come in, I recognize what they are. And by your grace, through your strength, there will be victory in Jesus. Is there anyone here who wants that experience, who wants to say to the Lord, I want that. If you want that, please stand. Father in heaven, we thank you today for your promises. We know they will not fail. And in Jesus, we have the greatest of all promises, a Savior. 
and one who will dwell in our hearts through your spirit. May we walk humbly with you, Lord, living a life that is pleasing to you. And thank you that when thoughts come in, by your grace, they do not need to bear fruit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.